If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Galatians, a New Testament epistle written by the Apostle Paul. The word apostle simply means one who has been designated, appointed to go out, to go out. And the apostles were men whom the Lord set aside to lay a foundation for the church in the age following the coming of Christ. We're in Galatians chapter 4 as we continue a series where we are picturing the people of God. We're looking at different biblical metaphors that help you have insight about who the people of God are in relation to God, to Christ, who we are in relation to one another, and who we are in relation to the world. And this morning we come to one of the images that has received comparatively little focus in the past decades. And I'll tell you that as we come to this text, the, it's, in a, it's one of the occasions where we're coming to a, a passage that transcends my ability to relate the things that are here as well as I would like. I have about an hour and a half of enthusiasm. We have about 30 minutes to look at these things. And I commend it to you. This is a big subject worthy of your study. We will not exhaust even the tip of what's here to consider together what it means to look at the church, the people of God, as the mother of all who believe. And yet that is what comes up here. Now there's a context to this passage in Galatians 4. Paul is writing to a young congregation that's composed mostly of Gentiles who did not grow up with a Jewish background. Remember, at the time of Christ's coming, the church is composed basically entirely within the boundaries, the external boundaries of the Jewish nation. And then with Christ and the apostles, God opens up those boundaries, so to speak, so that all of any nation who professes faith in Christ will be recognized and acknowledged as a believer. Now, the people in Galatia, a region in Asia Minor, are being told by certain professing believers who are Jewish that unless they themselves come back under all of the ethnic and ritualistic boundary markers, then they will not be regarded as believers. They're not heirs of the promise. And this is a movement that occurs in the first two centuries predominantly of the Christian church, a movement called Judaizers. The Judaizers are the people saying you have to act, live, obey as if you are under the old covenant law to be counted as a believer. Paul is responding to this, but he does so in a somewhat surprising way. He doesn't just lay out the doctrine of justification. That might be what we expect. Rather, he brings forward an analogy, and he says this has spiritual significance. And the analogy has to do with seeing the church as a kind of mother. Our passage begins in verse 21. Hear together with me the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's ask the Lord to bless us together in this time. Heavenly Father, we lean upon your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to enlighten our reading and consideration of the word, and we pray that you would cause it to go out in power to accomplish your will. We ask that you would incline us to receive and to respond exactly as you desire for the glory of Christ our Savior. For in his name we pray, amen. Our text draws a very close identity between the new covenant and the elect people of God. And it refers to the people of God as the Jerusalem above the mother of us all. This idea of the church as a kind of mother, the people of God, all believers, as serving collectively as a mother to believers individually, is not unknown throughout church history. But it has received comparatively little attention in the past decades. I don't know with certainty why that is. There are certainly different opinions. There's some conjecture. One idea is that perhaps it is because increasingly we've tried to bring together all imagery into God. That is, God is the Father, but also a desire to see God as mother. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does at times liken God to a mother. It says elsewhere in Isaiah, shall he forget his people any more than any mother would forget her nursing child? There are aspects of God's way that are comparable to a woman or to a mother. But the Lord is never identified or addressed as such. The church uniquely is so. The church is the bride and is called the bride. The church is called the mother. And when God created male and female, he did so for many purposes, one of them to maintain a fundamental distinction that would help his people understand how we relate to the creator and to the redeemer. There is a distinction not only in God as father and the church as mother, but then you and how you relate to these. If everything is absorbed, all the images are absorbed into God alone, what this tends to do is take the church as church out of the equation. It becomes just you and God. Just you and God. But no, this is one of the major images. Now, why has this fallen off the map? It's certainly not because it's unknown. In fact, in several of the most notable systematic theologies that were produced during the Protestant Reformation, 
This is the very first of the analogies, the very first of the pictures that is discussed in regards to the church. And so it certainly was known. Nor is it because it occurs only a few times in the Bible. We're going to see this image comes up again and again in both the Old and the New Testament to picture the people of God together as the mother of individual believers. Let me just give you a few samples to draw this identity a little bit more clearly. We see in our text here, verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now, in speaking of Jerusalem, we're talking about a city, about a people. But the word above there clues you out of the fact that this is a heavenly people. These are the same people at the end of the day who will be in glory. These are the same people who are described in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. Zion being identified again with Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In some sense, this Jerusalem above, the elect of God, the regenerate, those who know the Lord in true faith, are a mother to us all. Two other texts that demonstrate this. I won't ask you to turn, but again, I invite you to study. Revelation chapter 12, the apostle John is having a vision. And in that vision in Revelation chapter 12, he beholds a glorious, beautiful woman. And that woman gives birth to a son who becomes the ruler over all the nations. And in context, it's very apparent that son is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Now, somebody might say, well, then maybe that's Mary. No, it can't in the context be Mary. Rather, it's representing the church throughout the ages. And that's clear in verse 17 when it describes who else that woman gives birth to. Verse 17 says, the dragon, that is Satan became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The church is a mother and Satan hates this mother and hates her offspring who are all of the disciples of Christ. Another passage where perhaps it's even more explicit is where Jesus is addressing his disciples in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is surrounded by his disciples and some people come to Jesus. And the house that they're in is very crowded. And they say, hey Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. And they'd really love to see you. And he responds in a way that's a little bit enigmatic. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Do you know his response after that? Do you remember what he says about who his mother and brothers are? We tend to focus on the brothers part, not the mother part. He says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not any one individual, per se, but all the assembly of the disciples together. And you think back to Jesus' human life. He is, of course, very God of very God, and yet he was incarnate, and he grew up on the lap of the church, learning psalms written by David studying the law penned by Moses, learning wisdom in the temple as a young boy, speaking with those who were teachers. He grew up, too, being nurtured by the church. And then he looks around and says, as individuals, I see my brothers and sisters. And so you see from 
the beginning, both Old and New Testament, you have this image. Many more passages could be shown. But what's the purpose? This is not just some bare doctrine that you check off the box and say, I know another one of the pictures. Very much this will have significance for how you relate to the church and how you relate as the church. And the Holy Spirit is calling you this morning, again perhaps, or for the first time, to look upon God's people as the mother of all believers. And in turn, to understand what that means for your relationship with her and your relationship to others as her. We'll come to all of those things as we go through. Now, as we look at this idea, we're going to examine it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But the first is this, simply to build out a little bit, in what way is the church, the people of God, the mother of us all? In what way is the church the mother of us all? And I invite you to start simply by reflecting on an analogy that may be already very familiar to you. Christians talk about being born again. We talk about the new birth. And a lot of that language comes from John chapter 3. You remember the story in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with a teacher in Israel named Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, that person simply cannot see the kingdom of God. What humanity is by nature after the fall into sin renders them incapable of participating in the true spiritual life of the kingdom. They don't want it. They will not want it. They don't see it. Elsewhere in Corinthians, it says that it seems like foolishness to them. And therefore, they cannot receive it. And so it requires that a person receive a new nature. Now, by show of hands, and this is one of those things, I don't want to invite showing of hands. It's safe to ask this one. By show of hands, who caused their own conception in the womb of their mother? None of us, right? Jesus was a good teacher. He chose a great analogy. When it comes to new birth, you did not have anything to do with it. Now think about this analogy. In the analogy, God is the Father. He is our Father who art in heaven. And the way that he brings about this life is through the word of Christ by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. Even as all human life ordinarily is itself miraculous. God, according to Jeremiah, forms us within our mother's wombs. But here that new spiritual nature is wrought by the Holy Spirit through the word. First Peter says that you were begotten again through the incorruptible seed of the word. And the word seed there is very much a human reproductive term. You look at the same term. That's what it's the analogy being built out here. God who created organic life, anticipating his will to reveal things, made life the way it is so that you would have a better understanding. Not the reverse. Reverend Smith pointed that out last week. I always appreciate when that's reaffirmed. God didn't have to go finding analogies. He created the analogies to suit reality. And so God, by the Spirit, through the Word, produces new birth. Now I'll tell you, this is often the point at which people stop thinking about the analogy. And what they're left with is just a me and God moment. God did this, and it was in me, as if you were born in a test tube. And you were not. God conceives, he brings this life, and nurtures it in the womb of Christian ministry and community. And it's always been this way. 
When God wanted to make a people for himself, he didn't just call Abraham and then over here he calls someone else and over here he calls someone else. He forms a community. He assigns roles. And it's in that matrix, a word that literally means womb, connected to matriarch or maternal, mother, it's in that setting that God brings the word and works through the gifts of the spirit imparted to people and cultivates life. And you see this, for instance, in Romans chapter 10. I don't ask you to turn there. It's very brief. But Romans 10, verses 14 through 16, the apostle asks a rhetorical question. How are outsiders to believe in Christ of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the word sent there is loaded. He's saying this as an apostle who was sent, same term, set aside for this purpose. And then he concludes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we might add, and the word through the church that declares it. God uses means, and this protects us on some level from a just me and God mentality. And it helps us to understand a bit our purpose. The God who created all things, mothers and fathers alike, shows himself as our father, and he has chosen the church to be the means of bearing salvation in the world. Even right there, we have to pause and be amazed at the kindness, the privilege that the Lord has pronounced upon his people. But it doesn't just stop at birth. It has to do with much more. It has to do with nourishment, comfort, correction. Think of the law. If, a, if you had to write a job description of motherhood, on the one hand, you think nobody is going to take this job at these wages. <laughs> right? And yet, we say by an instinct and by a nurture that God has formed, many do. And that is for our learning concerning what the church is. And that's the first idea. What does it mean that the church is a mother to us all? But we need to go further. That raises a second major question, or a second main heading. And I put it to you pointedly, because this is one of the major concerns of the scriptures. Seeing the church is the mother of all believers, what is your relationship with your mother this day? <clears throat> I don't mean your earthly mother, I mean this mother. Though your relationship to your earthly mother may have colored your expectations, may make it harder, just like people who had a terrible relationship with their father might have a hard time praying, our father art in heaven. They have to be renewed and transformed by the word. Even so, this idea of mother may be hard for you. This was one of the issues at the heart of the Galatian temptation, a wrong relationship with the church as mother, even if they didn't fully understand that. Our passage here, I, I mentioned to you already, Paul is writing to Gentile believers who are being pressured that they have to adopt an old covenant way of living. And our understanding through Christ and the apostles is the old covenant served in order to prepare God's church for the realities which were to come. They were temporary. They're not meant to be forever any more than, say, when a caterpillar goes into its chrysalis and it comes out a butterfly, it then does not carry the chrysalis with it forever. It served a function for a time when it was less mobile and now it has gone with great flexibility into all the world. And yet these Judaizers are telling these 
Gentile Christians. If you don't, then you cannot have assurance of salvation. In fact, your salvation is based upon whether or not you keep these things. And for you, you might say, that is no temptation for me. I have no desire to go back. You maybe have some familiarity with Orthodox Judaism today. There are millions of people who hold that view and believe exactly the same thing today, by the way. And maybe that doesn't hold any temptation for you, but you have to understand why it was tempting for them, because there is overlap there. Here, these believers are meeting at this stage of history in homes. Many of them are quite poor, maybe huts. Meanwhile, the Judaizers can walk freely into the temple in Jerusalem, and it's glorious, it's beautiful. The Christians are associated with poverty. We read that elsewhere in the epistles. Uh, to say Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, he explicitly says that they were characterized by being poor. And yet, you could go into that temple and it's all beautiful and rich. And there's gold in there covering everything. And they feel like outsiders. They're being persecuted and being scorned by the professing people of God. And there's a bit of a crisis going on. Which family do you want to be associated with? And this is where Paul brings it back and he begins to apply a story that might be surprising to you. Now, maybe you're not as familiar with the story that he applies when he speaks of Sarah and Hagar. From our point in history right now, he's talking about something that's about 4,000 years ago. A long time ago. God calls, by the way, you can find all this, Genesis 16 through 21 is the story as he describes it. Genesis 16 through 21. God calls one man out of a city out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, from that one man, Abraham, I'm going to make a people of faith, a new nation, a holy nation set aside to me. But not as an end in itself. He says, from that one man, I'm going to cause that people to be a blessing to all nations. And so the end goal is always to bless all peoples, not just the Jewish people. And when he does so, God promises that the wife of Abraham is going to bear a miraculous child. It had to be that way because she is so old, she's beyond the years when she could bear. She's in her 90s by the time that she does. He promises a miraculous child and that through that miraculous child are going to come an innumerable number of offspring. And all of that comes to pass. All that comes to pass in the birth of first Isaac and then the nation of Israel. But Paul says, no, there was more to this. This is a historical event, but it's also an allegory. In some circles, the word allegory is a bad word, which makes no sense because it's in our Bible. There are bad interpretations of words, but the word itself is just helping you get at something. The literal meaning of that word allegory that you see in your text means to speak beyond a thing. And we are all familiar that sometimes one statement can have multiple levels of meaning. Both are valid. And so Paul is not saying, when he says there's an allegory here, he's not saying that this is a myth that never happened. Rather, he's saying it happened, but by God's providence, it had spiritual significance that went beyond, that was speaking beyond that. If you don't understand that basic concept, you're going to have a hard time with the Old Testament. Because God was providentially working these things through so that his people would benefit from the understanding. Now let's look at that one story there. Paul says there's an analogy here. 
in some way, Sarah, in her relationship to Isaac, the miraculous child, and then all the offspring that come, that tells us something about the church. Now, there is another woman in the story, and maybe you're familiar with that, maybe not. Sarah grew impatient. In fact, she laughed when God said that she would have a child. And she took matters into her own hands, and she recommended, because God was taking too long, that Abraham should conceive a child with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. We can look at that and say, that is so incredibly immoral, or that is so strange. You have to appreciate, in the culture then and for a long time after, that was not viewed as any different than the various forms of artificial conception today. And the woman with whom the other child is conceived was herself a servant from Egypt, Hagar. She conceived, she has a child named Ishmael, and then soon after that, both she and Ishmael begin to tease Sarah to make her life hard, to point out, oh, that you're barren, perhaps. And then God, according to promise, grants that Isaac is born, and Ishmael begins to persecute, to tease, to score, and you can read this in Genesis 21, that little child. And Sarah, as a mother, says, I will not stand for this. That servant woman and her child are teasing my child. And she requests Abraham, send that woman away. That can seem very cruel. My point is not to say that there was no cruelty in it, but God was setting up an analogy. And Abraham condescends. He says, yes. And they are sent away. Now, not entirely bereft of money or anything. In fact, Ishmael sent away quite rich. That'll come back in our understanding of the significance here. But he has no inheritance in the covenant promises. He has some goods for this life, but he doesn't have the promises associated with everlasting life and the enduring offspring. Paul's point in drawing this picture here, he says, you are having an identity crisis about who your mother is and who your family is. And there is the old way of relating to God, where you can relate on the basis of your own completion of the law. You can relate on the basis of this life. And in the end, you have no place in the house of God. Or you can relate on the basis of pure promise, the miracle associated with Jesus Christ. See what it says in Galatians 4, verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In essence, the Galatians were tempted to be ashamed of their mother. And is it not the case that this day there are many who, for a variety of reasons, are ashamed to be associated with the people of God and with the true covenant? And there's something attractive about a way of works or a way of the world. You have to hold on. This is the only house that has a promise. And look at the honor that God has placed upon his believing people. Even the name Sarah. Originally, you may know this, her name was Sarai. And like Abram's name was changed to Abraham, father of a multitude. So originally, Sarai simply meant my princess. And you can imagine some father and mother naming their little daughter that, my princess. 
God changes it to princess of all. Princess of all. Not for her sake, but so that you would have some better understanding of the church. And to reverence, to honor. That doesn't mean she was without fault. Doesn't mean she's not weak. And Sarah was weak. She was over 90. Can you imagine a 90-year-old with a 2-year-old? And that's the church. She's old. And she has stretch marks. And she's aching. She's tired at times. And her patience grows thin. The people of God are a weak people. The, the whole point is not that the church was this young woman who's got energy. That's Hagar. In the analogy, the Lord has given to us a woman whose primary qualification is his choice. I chose her. And she's going to bring about miracles through my grace. None less than the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has come through the line of the church, was raised on her knee. And just as a whole multitude came from Isaac, so a multitude has come from Christ. Do you love her? This was God's choice. Isaiah chapter 66, in fact, I invite you to turn and look at this passage. It's one of the many that I thought today, oh man, do I want to use this verse or another verse as the main text? Isaiah 66. Through much of Isaiah, uh, through the beginning of the book, it's, it's fairly depressing. You see the church in many respects seeming to fail. And then at the end, you get a sense, it's sometimes called the fifth gospel, a sense of the things that are to come with Christ. Isaiah 66, verses 10 through 13, tells us how we ought to relate to our mother. Rejoice with Jerusalem. And be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And you hold that in tandem with Peter, saying, First Peter, that we are to receive the pure milk of the word. It's not falling from clouds, it's coming from the church by the Spirit. It's in the lap of the church, ordinarily, that God brings maturity. You wonder, why isn't that person growing? What is their relationship to the church? It goes on, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And this is the context that we are brought into this comfort. That tells us something about our relationship with the church, but there's one step further we have to go. Remember, it's a picture not of the institution, but ultimately of the believing people. The church is not a place you go on Sunday. It's a people with whom you assemble both in this age and the age to come. And if you are a believer, that means that this is saying something about you as well, something maternal about you. This tells us that, by the way, this is our third and final point, what it says about our relationship as the church. This says something about what you are to embody in your affections and your actions. I mentioned before 
everything that I was grateful to have gone to our, our so-called man camp. 30-some men, we've done this for years. It's always a great joy. But it is, you know, it's an opportunity for those who enjoy such things to indulge in stereotypically male activities. There is axe throwing, and I won't even go further from there. It, it's very much that. And there's a place where I certainly would agree we have to cultivate this distinction so that we have a good understanding of the father and the mother or the bride. There needs to be distinction. On the other hand, when God created man, he created them, male and female. And the whole image of God is reflected in different attributes, and there's a sense in which men as well need to embody certain maternal instincts. Turn with me in your Bible, look over at Galatians 4, verse 19. And it's on purpose that it's in the same context as what we're talking about with this mother. Galatians 4, verse 19. The apostles pleading with them, he says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, I thought you had been born again, but now I'm actually worried that maybe you're not. And I am not going to be satisfied until I see you growing up and looking like the image bearer. I want to think about a mother in that sense, that even as she's got this child in her womb, and they know it's a boy, and she's so excited for when that child gets to an age that he looks like dad. And Paul's saying, I am in anguish. I'm in pain. And it's not a purposeless pain. I long to see the image of Christ born upon others. And that's not going to be a physical resemblance. It's spiritual. It's character. It's a holiness. Do you feel yearning for others? You can say, well, that's Paul. That's Paul and his calling. And No. The mother is the people of God together. And if you don't keep that in your mind clearly, if you over-individualize this mothering, you will become exasperated. Moses did that. Listen to what Moses said in Numbers 11. He's speaking to the Lord awfully boldly. Numbers 11, verse 11 and 12. What have I done to displease you that you put this burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? to the land that you promised by an oath to their forefathers. If you over-individualize this mothering and think you have to do everything to get people to maturity, you will become like that in that moment. And in the very next passage, God's answer to Moses is to acquiesce, to grant 70 elders who are going to serve alongside of him. This Maternity that we're called to is one that involves the people working together. And yet, as individuals, there is a longing for birth, and not just birth, a longing to help others mature, to correct, to show affection, to weep when it seems like one is stillborn. And this informs our view of Christian mission. Brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong, there's a place for many good things that exist as an outcome of our mission. The primary task of the church is not to feed people who are hungry. The primary task of the church is not to clothe the poor. 
The primary task of the church is not to change the laws. The primary task of the church is not to ensure that the culture maximally represents our ideas of good behavior. The primary task of the church is neither that we would, oh, the list could go on, make sure everyone understands doctrine to the nth degree. Any or all of those may be outcomes of the influence of a healthy Christian church. My point is not to say any of them are bad. But the primary task of the church as the mother is to bear unto God genuine spiritual children who are being raised in the household to reflect his will. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. And so we don't have any place for the mother of this people to want people to come to faith and then not to disciple them. What kind of mother is that? What kind of mother are we as a congregation if we yearn for people to come to faith, but we won't invest the time as individuals, but together, to raise the next generation up? That's a bad mom. But the Lord called a tired old woman. And so there's a place to find fresh strength. It means that we cannot be content only to bring in other Christians and to develop them here. As one person said, you know, Reformed churches versus uh, evangelical churches out there, though we believe the evangel, you know, they mine them, we shine them. That's what Reformed churches do. The ethos must not be that. It has to be a longing for birth from the outside, from unbelievers. Over every single pulpit in this nation, inside every prayer closet, every one of us must come back, me as well, Every week, think of the words of Rachel, who is barren. Give me children or I die. If that's not your longing, then this is what the Holy Spirit is working in you today. Give it to you. Because if God doesn't work a miracle, and Rachel was barren, if God doesn't work a miracle, our churches will only be full of false converts, or they will simply cease to exist. Give me children or I die must be our longing as a congregation. It's not enough to have a few people. The church as a body embodies this. And then we raise them to maturity. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We long for it, but we also long to give it to others. And that means you need to know how to administer the milk of the word. You may not be a pastor. You may not be an elder. Every one of us should be competent to give the milk. The basic things to one another. Well, we've seen this morning that, by God's grace, the church is the mother of all believers. I just want to leave you with a few questions. First, very straightforwardly, is the church your mother? Do you perceive yourself as an heir of the promises that were given to her and all her offspring? And I will simply tell you, and everyone here believes it as well, every believer here, There is no better family and no better terms of relating. The passage we're in says, you who desire to be under the law, don't you hear what it says? We desire to be justified, to be declared righteous in God's sight, purely according to promise. And then he forms his image in us. If that's you, then I encourage you, receive that promise that God forgives and receives all as his own children who trust in Christ. Then I ask you, what is your relationship with your mother? 
Are you indifferent to her welfare? Or do you mourn for her when you hear how she struggles? Are you angry with her for her faults? The point is not to say that she has no faults. If the Lord wanted a faultless person, he would have called an angel. He didn't. He called Sarah. Sarah has faults. Look at Hagar. That was Sarah's choice. And the church often leans hard upon the flesh, and when she does, bad things happen. But the Lord calls you to look at her as the chosen vessel of his grace in the world and to love her, to provide for her, to spend time with her. And then let me, with you, close on a note of encouragement. As we are called together to bear fruit, you may feel somewhat barren and that the Christian church is going through a time of barrenness. You might feel that way. I don't think it's true, by the way. In Isaiah chapter 26, Judah is speaking, lamenting what seems like barrenness. Hear what this says. It's very important. I know we're at the end. Isaiah 26, verses 17 and 18 says, As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in pain, so were we in your presence, O Yahweh. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. Israel had a calling to bring salvation to the nations, that they would live in such a holy way that the nations would be drawn to know what is it you believe. And they closed the old covenant, seemingly barren. And yet at the very end of Isaiah, in the same passage we saw before, in the verses immediately before, God assures them, the due date is coming. Hold on. Isaiah 66, verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. And this is speaking of something yet to come, but as though it had already come to pass. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Imagine that. A totally, you know, a woman who's with child, she's almost at the end, and then suddenly the baby's there and there was no pain. That sounds absurd, right? And he knows that sounds absurd. It says, who's heard of such a thing? Who's ever seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, then she brought forth her children. Shall I, the Lord, bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? The church felt, if I just do enough, if I'm holy enough, if I keep the old covenant perfectly enough, it will all happen. And that's laboring, but then suddenly without labor, something different happens. Christ is born, and in one day on Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 come in from all nations. And then in a matter of weeks, thousands upon thousands are being gathered. To this day, do you appreciate, we get so locked into our little tiny group, do you appreciate that there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of believers in the world? Over two professing believing, two billion professing believing people. And so if you are of the sort who says, well, there's a lot of those aren't real, and so uh, let's reduce it. Let's go ahead, reduce it by 10, a factor of 10. We're still talking a gigantic number of believers at this moment, let alone the past. Galatians 4.27, it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. 
God did not call you to failure. The church is not a failure. She's a miracle. And the Lord wants us to play our part in it too, and it's a privilege. Let's ask him now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us in these treasures of your word. We ask you would help us to bear your image. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.